Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. someone be alive and be a ghost at the same time? Could the ghost in your house actually be someone living their day-to-day life in a neighboring town or country? What happens if you have a ghostly version of yourself? Hey there. Hey there. Welcome to the 214th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. And those strange questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. Sorry we're a little late, but one of Woonsocket's finest, doing his duty, stopped us for going through a stop sign, which I have never done in my life. Anyway, uh, he'll see me in court. Nice guy, though, i got to say. I hope he's listening. Uh, best of luck to you this evening, officer. Anyway, okay, a little frustrated tonight, but let's get going. We have no guests this evening because I've been rifling through my files all week to collect cases of Ghosts of the Living, a subject rarely covered in the pop paranormal literature, but which we think is crucial to understanding what ghosts really are. I've also been saving for this show our emails on the subject. People seeing ghostly manifestations or even full, solid figures of those who are still alive but somewhere else was something that the earliest paranormal or psychical researchers, as they called themselves then, were very much aware of. Today, the subject can touch on the so-called astral projection, near-death experiences, out-of-the-body experiences, and the whole doppelganger phenomenon and more. Doppelganger is a German word meaning double. If people see doubles of themselves, that sometimes is known in the paranormal. All right, but before we get too deep into that, let's go to our weekly paranormal contest. So this week's question is what... Or last week's question, I should say, was what 18th century European philosopher and mystic claimed to have made a journey to other planets? All right, well, uh, we often think that people didn't start wondering about life on other planets until pilot Kenneth Arnold reported his flying saucers in 1947. But our winner, uh, Kim Harris of Douglas, Massachusetts, knows that Emanuel Swedenborg, a Swedish philosopher and theologian, claimed to be in psychic contact with aliens as far back as the 1750s. In 1758, Swedenborg, whose teachings still inspire many psychics and occultists today, published the book, concerning Earths in the solar system, in which he detailed his alleged journeys to the inhabited planets. Right, that sounds like George Adamski in the 1950s. Not 1750s? Haha, yeah. correlation. Yeah, that's right, 200 years later. We talked about him last week. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know, our good friend from Holland made an argument. Anyway, uh, there's nothing new under the sun, I guess, or Venus in this case. That's where Adamski said he went. All right, it's interesting that Swedenborg never claimed to actually have traveled beyond... Saturn, the farthest known planet at the time. Maybe the aliens couldn't see Uranus, Neptune, or Pluto either. No, apparently not. Well, anyway. Uh, this week's question yeah. is, in what country is the Festival of the Hungry Ghosts held? So if you get that right, get a copy of Files from the Edge, a paranormal investigator's uh, explorations uh, into high strangeness by our good friend Philip J. Imbrogno. Call us locally at 401-766-1240 or nationally at 800-449-1240. If nobody gets it before the end of the show and you still think you have a shot, drop a line to me at bennybehindtheparanormal.com. Ghosts of the Living. 
Uh, it's a phenomenon known since the beginning of humankind, and it created questions that plagued the earliest paranormal researchers. While it pretty much uh, gets lost amid the noise of pop paranormal research today and ghost hunting and all that business, it still has real parapsychologists and transpersonal psychologists scratching their heads. As far back as 1886, pioneering British researchers Edmund Gurney, Frederick W. H. Myers, and Frank Podmore published a book called Phantasms of the Living in two large volumes, as with all works by the early parapsychological community, made up mostly of members of the London-based Society for Psychical Research, which still exists. It's steeped in the ideas of early psychology and um, with more than a tinge of early spiritualism. And as such, it sweats and strains to make these phenomena fit scientific principles. Here we have those, to us at least, maddening assumptions that come from Western thinking. Science can explain reality if only we make everything fit. The universe, or multiverse as we call it, will obey our rules if only we can figure out what those rules are. All right, so the only science that would have supplied any real explanations was quantum physics. But in the late 1800s, that was only just getting started. Well, so the general conclusion of these people was that mental telepathy existed and that people could unconsciously project quote-unquote, their minds and maybe even their personalities to a point that other people might see them even if they weren't really physically there. They even came up with some experiments to try and prove this. Didn't your friend uh, Scott Rango do experiments like that? Well, Rogo. Scott oh, Rogo. Rango. Rango. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was like a cowboy. I'm thinking of that new Giant Depp movie. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. well, anyway, Scott Rogo. Uh, yeah, he did, Ben, actually. Uh, I knew Scott in the late 17... Uh, late 1770. The late, yeah, late right. 1770s. The late, I'm still a little shaken up. The late 70s and early 80s, 1980s that is, uh, he was a brilliant and open-minded researcher, he was a fine writer, and a real parapsychologist with a real degree. Now when I think of Scott, uh, I have a terrible memory of being in the Providence Journal newsroom where I was working as the wire editor that evening, August 15, 1990, uh, when news came over the AP, uh, the Associated Press, wire service, that Scott had been murdered uh, during a break-in at his home near Los Angeles. And uh, I often wonder if there was more to that, but it was a you know very very sad thing you know to be in there and to I suppose be the first one in Rhode Island to have heard that. Uh, Scott tended to think that projection of the mind or personality outside the body was possible, and might even have an interdimensional component. Uh, he didn't live long enough for us to discuss my multiverse ideas about the paranormal, however. But Scott told me about one experiment he did in the seventh in the ninth. Here we go again. The ni- I'm 200 years behind tonight. Uh, that Scott did in the 1970s with a colleague, uh, Dr. S. Keith Harari, also a renowned parapsychologist. And uh, Keith could induce, uh, maybe still can, I don't know, can induce out-of-the-body experiences at will. Uh, Keith told colleagues that he would project himself to Scott's house at a certain time one evening uh, that Scott didn't know about as long as there was no electrical storm going on. Interesting. Uh, this incident helped inspire Scott to write his 1983 book, Leaving the Body, A Complete Guide to Astral Projection. All right, he was very cautious about projecting when there were storms, high-tension wires, and other big electrical fields around. That's something that makes sense when it comes to our own multiverse research with EM fields that make the worlds go around. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I've ne- I was never able to talk to Keith about this. Uh, I have corresponded with him once or twice in the, in the distant past, but do not know him uh, and would like to find out more about why he doesn't want to do this during electrical storms. I mean, I can figure out why we wouldn't know, but why would he? Yeah. 
Anyway, uh, sure enough, not long after the time Keith said he would be there, Scott reported that he looked up, startled, to see Keith ambling down his hallway. Uh, at the same time, Keith was in his own house, many miles away. On the other side of the ghosts of the living issue have always been the spiritualists, mystics, and cultists. They believe that everything physical has a spiritual counterpart, including the human body. Not only was this quote-unquote astral body left over death, or left uh, left over after death, but it could be projected while the physical body was still alive. That's what they believe. Well, let's take a look at this phenomenon in a little more depth uh, by looking at some examples of it. And we have some pretty interesting emails on this subject uh, that I've saved uh, for this show. So let's uh, take a look at them now instead of at the end. Okay, this is from Peggy J., uh, one of our listeners in Seattle. So, Ben, if you would. Okay. Um, <clears throat> After months of thinking that I'm crazy and having some of my friends agree, I heard your show, uh, your recent show on doppelgangers and realized that maybe I'm not. I'm 33 and a healthcare professional in Seattle. My best friend works with me. A few months back, she took a vacation for a week, but that Tuesday, I saw her twice in the parking lot at the building where we work. I called to her, but she didn't hear me. She seemed to disappear rather abruptly. Two days later, on Thursday... I saw her inside the building. I ran up to her asked, and asked her if she was back early, but she looked right through me as if I didn't, as if she didn't know me, and then passed around a corner and was gone. I was very upset. The following Monday, the real quote unquote person got back from the vacation. I told her what happened. She scoffed, but something in her eyes told me she was kind of scared. Maybe she was scared that I was nuts. I figured that if anybody could explain this, uh, it would be you guys. Well, hmm. well we can try. Yeah. Uh, I've thought for many years about this phenomenon. Of course, uh, this case I always talk about, I'll go into it in a little more depth later, was the case in Maine where a young girl was at the same time a student at the University of Connecticut and uh, apparently haunting a house in coastal Maine. Something really strange, but apparently that was what happening. And it really got me wondering about whether they're really is such a thing as ghosts as spirits of the dead, or if there's not more to this. But in any case, Peggy, uh, this is not an uncommon occurrence. We do hear about people uh, when you know we know they're away, and uh, we do see them anyway somehow. I think what is happening from our point of view, and we could be wrong about this, is we, of course, fall back on the multiverse theory, the idea that uh, right next to us all the time, uh, and this is a... Uh, the ideas that are expressed in some aspects of quantum mechanics today, quantum physics, that we don't live in one universe or one world. We live in a multiverse where there are parallel worlds where all possibilities exist. This is what the math says. All possibilities exist at the same time. And in uh, sort of right next to us, I suppose, uh, in, in many ways could be the, the a world in which this young lady never did go anywhere and really was in the hallway or in the parking lot. And you somehow were attuned in just the right way uh, or were sensitive enough to see her, even though in, in our conscious world she was on vacation. And I think it's as simple as that, if you can call that simple. Uh, I, I might uh, want to ask for further questions, Peggy, uh, if you want to write to us again, uh, to tell us if you have had other uh, quote-unquote psychic experiences, uh, whether you've had other paranormal experiences, whether you feel that you are sensitive to uh, stimuli of this kind and have had other experiences of this kind. Because I think uh, these things are really never isolated. Some of us uh, are very good at playing the piano. Others 
can't even play chopsticks or do, even do that, wouldn't know how to sit down at the thing. Uh, so in the same way, some people are very sensitive to these things, other people are not. Uh, you might be very sensitive. What What do you think, Ben? Well, again, you cover every area before I get a chance to touch at it, but... Well, all right, you could answer the next one, and I won't. How's that? No, uh, we'll take turns. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Give well, me a break. About well, a you like you get you just hit the home run and you're like ha ha ha. I run to all the bases and stuff. Yeah, and then Babe Ruth of the paranormal, I'm sure. I just sit there in the bullpen and I'm just like oh. All right, but anyway, uh, it's it's um, it's interesting that you see here inside and outside, and uh, you mentioned the doppelganger phenomenon. Our next question uh, has to do um, with that, and you can answer that. And oh, wonderful. Oh, let me see what's wrong. Uh, sorry. <clears throat> Uh, Katie from Douglas, Massachusetts, in our local listening area. All right. So what is the difference between a living ghost and a doppelganger? Well, folks, um, to be honest, I don't know. Well, well, there's really no difference, I don't think. I mean, a living ghost is basically just sort of any sort of ghost, since there's no such thing as death, in our opinion. Well, this is the key here. I think we we agree that, that all ghosts in the normal course are actually people in parallel worlds. Yeah, so body and all, pe- you know, the people. Ju- just as you're seeing one here in, in the form of someone who's alive, doesn't make any difference because we're, we're all alive everywhere. Uh, not everywhere, but but you know, everybody. Our life is bigger than us. We're not just us. You look in the mirror, you're a lot bigger than that in a sense. You have a super life and a super personality that seems to spread out in a great consciousness wave across all these many worlds where you're. Going about your day, doing different things. Uh, sometimes you're, you may have a different name, different job, all these things. This is what quantum physics seems to indicate uh, from this point of view. So, well, you see, if we were feral ghost hunters, the term "living ghost" would be like a big paradox. Would be like that's not yeah. possible. But in fact, if you really think about it, a living ghost and a doppelganger really are the same thing. In so, I was thinking about this question because I, well, unlike yourself, I um, was I guess I should have let you see it ahead of time, but I did see it when it came in, and I was thinking about it. And I'm thinking, well, I can't well, get to the email, so it's kind of hard to. Yeah, yeah, no, your email's having a problem. Anyway, I'm thinking that uh, we've got not quite the same thing in all cases. A doppelganger is really, strictly speaking, the double of yourself. Okay, if you well, it could be a double, another double somewhere, sure, somewhere, yeah, exactly. et, cetera, et cetera. So in a way, I think that uh, in a way, every doppelganger is a living ghost, but not every living ghost is necessarily a doppelganger. Well, no. You know why? <laughs> right, here's, what I'm, here's what I'm getting at. You know, you, you're suppose you're walking down the street. Okay. You know, you're in New York or right. L.A. or whatever, wherever people may be. Right. How many of those people are really there? You can ask that question. Oh, you know, because how many times have you been? In uh, well, like our police officer tonight, I know perfectly well he was right behind us. So naturally, I'm not going to be stupid enough not to go through, a, you know, to go right through a stop. But what if there were two? But suppose, suppose he was a doppelganger. Suppose he was a living ghost, as it were, and really wasn't there. Because many times people will tell, "Gee, I, look, I was somebody who's in my rearview mirror. I couldn't, uh, you know, I, I don't know where they came from. They're right on my tail. All of a sudden, they're gone. Nowhere they could have turned. And it's possible." That again, we're seeing doppelgangers, as it were, or living ghosts all the time. Yeah, well, and of course, these ghosts, so-called, don't even include, don't necessarily have to be people. I mean, this is what um, some of our guests uh, from uh, England have have often suggested. You know, how can you have ghosts of, of trucks, of cars, things of this kind, buildings, as we discussed in a recent show? Uh, and um, have them be spirits of the dead. Well, there's a lot more to it than that, and I think we're talking about it tonight. Yes. 
So I, can, I think that uh, in some cases, um, you're, I, I know it's difficult to say. I think the, the doppelganger of someone is living in a parallel universe. Well, that could be living ghosts, parallel universes, and it's all just been one big paradox. Well, the fact is, you can go nuts just thinking about this stuff. So take it as it comes. All right, here we go. This is another question about living ghosts. This is from Wendy Muller in Los Angeles. A little bit long, but <clears throat> no, it's whatever. Just put it on one big thing. Okay. I love your show and look forward to them all week. Oh, well, thank you. Anyway, I'm really... Sorry. Jeez. Okay, let's just take a deep breath. Thank you. You're welcome. Anyway, I'm really fascinated when you talk about doppelgangers, and I never fail to get chilled, like, get a chill up my spine when you talk about that UConn student in Connecticut who was haunting a house in Maine. So... Imagine my amazement when something very similar happened to a friend of mine. She is a high school teacher, and when she started school this past fall, on one on day one in the first class, she saw one of her students staring at her in complete terror. After class, she called him up and asked if uh, he though she what if he thought uh, oh i i didn't i didn't i just guess that's thought okay if he thought she was ugly or something she's actually very pretty and he was so nervous he could barely talk two days later after she was ready to send him to school to the school shrink the (laughs) kid finally told her that she looked exactly like the ghost that haunted his house after this she still thought of sending him to the shrink (laughs) but something about him convinced her he was telling the truth long story short she finally ended up going over to his house this was a few months ago and almost fainted because the place seemed so familiar to her she had dreams about this house all her life the kid's parents were freaked out when they saw her but they all had dinner and a nice evening well that's good just like the case in maine the ghost hasn't been seen since now he here's the really weird part. The family said that they had lived in the house for over 30 years, and the ghost always looked like my friend does now, never younger, never older. What do you make of that? That's really interesting. Uh, it sounds a lot like our case in May, which we will talk about in some detail later. You know, I love you folks in California. I mean, I love, we're 10th generation New Englanders here, but people are a little, little reticent to talk about these things as openly as you folks are out on the West Coast, and I appreciate this letter. Uh, Wendy, I would say that um, your friend has um, had a very similar experience to our young lady in Maine. Uh, what's really interesting is, and, and as I said, we'll discuss that later, but what's really interesting here is is that they've lived in this house for 30 years, and this quote-unquote ghost has been exactly the same, uh, no, no younger, no older. Uh, you might have a, a parallel world situation where, uh, see, I'll tell you how, how how would our, our feral ghost hunter friends interpret this, Ben? You think there would be, a, of course, a... Flabbergasted. Yeah, well, they, well, it would be a residual haunting, they would say, just on the face of it. Yes. In other words, something got recorded on the environment or whatever. But of a living is. person. Yeah, exactly. You have a living person here. Well, they, they would say, well, maybe it just looks like her. But these people seem uh, perfectly convinced that this is the actual person who's doing the haunting. And this is what happened in, in uh, this case that we refer to, the mother of all cases of, of these living ghosts. So I think we've got a parallel world experience going on, being shared by several different people. I would like to know a little more, Wendy, if you'd like to write to us again. I'd like to know what this ghost is wearing. Uh, does the clothing change? Does the hairstyle change when you see this? What is the context in which you see this? 
Does everyone in the home see it? Is it at night? Is it during the day? I'd like to know a few more details. But obviously these people are convinced that this teacher is very similar. And I'm glad that, as I say, people people in California are more open to this and they had a nice dinner and uh, all phenomena, just like in the main case, all phenomena seem to have uh, have stopped uh, since then. So that's that's very interesting. Physicists might say that the wave function has been collapsed. The possibility has been made real. The two worlds have joined. And you have one consciousness stream now instead of two. And the people are not experiencing the, the double worlds anymore. Right? It's like Donnie Darko. Yeah, how, that, that's people, how. Well, people that, might like to see that movie. That's a controversial film, but yeah, we'll talk about it. Well, it's no, it's just what happens at the end. I mean, I did a lot of research on it because I had to write a ten-page paper on that for my senior English class, and I watched the movie twenty-five times, in, and within like a, a span of a week, I copied down every single piece of maison scène. I copied down like everything, and then I found out the book that is mentioned in the movie that. Uh, uh, Richard Kelly wrote, I think, it's called The Philosophy of Time Travel. It has to do with physics, in a way. And the whole movie is basically a parallel universe that must be collapsed to make the main universe work, which is the whole thing with the airplane engine, etc., mm, etc., yeah. etc. So everyone's just going to have to watch it good movie. and just watch it over and over again until you get it. But I, I understand it. Completely. Surprising casts as well. A lot, a lot of yeah, Jake, Gyllen- Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, even Seth Rogen makes an appearance in that, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. It's it's really, really interesting movie. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, avant-garde, certainly, and uh, alternative, but very interesting. Yeah. Okay. So The sequel's terrible. Don't watch the yeah. sequel. So, Wendy, if you can get some more information uh, for us on this, I think that would be great. And I'd like to find out what I asked, as I say, maybe get a little more deep, deeply into this. Okay, we are... Um, going to take a uh, commercial break here, and you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM, com. We'll be right back to talk about more ghosts of the living. Everything you know is wrong. Hi, I'm Ben Eno. And I'm Paul Eno. Check out our show, Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, here on ON 1240 AM on Mondays on our new drive time slot at 6 p.m. The paranormal is not what you think it is. You're going to examine the whole thing from a whole new perspective on our show, and we expect that you're going to be very surprised. Do not check your brain at the door. You're going to need it. Be there. Come to the Mardi Gras. Hi, this is Romeo Berthiaume inviting you to come to the 2011 Mardi Gras Ball to be held on Saturday, February 26th from 6 p.m. to midnight at the Father Marit CYO Center here in Woonsocket. Two Zydeco bands, including Slippery Sneakers and Little Wayne in the same old Two Steps, will perform, and a full Cajun buffet prepared by Gary McLaughlin will be served. The unmasking of King Jace the 17th by the Mardi Gras Queen, who will be crowned on February 20th, is a highlight. Prizes will be awarded for best costume. Tickets are still $25, and they're available by calling Lorraine Cloutier at 762-9072. Oh, yes, the children's portion of the Mardi Gras will be held on the afternoon of the ball at the Museum of Working Culture from 2 to 4 p.m. Free admission for the first 60 kids ages 4 to 9. Food, games, prizes, and a special movie will be shown. Hope you come to the Mardi Gras on Saturday, February 26th. You can depend on us for public service. Owen Radio. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on Owen 
1240 here in uh, the beautiful Blackstone Valley and uh, New England, and we are going to be le- reading another email here. This is going to be this is from Marty. He asked us not to use his full name, Marty from El Paso, Texas, uh, and uh, Marty has a very interesting story to tell. Okay, so Marty writes to us. My dad was a guy who could be in two places at once. Almost every day when I was a kid, I remember people coming up to me and saying they saw him somewhere the day before or the weekend before, and I knew they couldn't have because I knew he was somewhere else. Sometimes somebody would say, why didn't you answer when I called to you? Or sometimes somebody somebody else would say they had enjoyed the conversation they had with my dad when he wasn't even there. Our family got so used to this that we didn't think anything of it for a while. My dad especially, because he told us it would it had to happen it had happened all his life. My mom used to joke that my dad should go to work and stay home to do chores at the same time. We all had a big laugh, but what was really going on here? Um, I know about the astral body and the OBE stuff, but I know you guys don't believe in that. <laughs> uh, he has confidence in us. Yes. All right. Well. Again, this this is an interesting case, particularly because this seems to have gone on and on and on and on. Mm. Uh, well known in the family, and um, very often uh, people this will happen, and people say, "Oh, gee, well, there must be somebody who looks like you." Or, or, or you, you often hear people say, this, "You have a twin." Oh, I've, I've heard about people to be able to, uh, people that have been able to do that, like Padre Pio. You could do that. Yes, uh, I, has he been canonized? I, uh, I think, yeah, I think he's been canonized. Okay, gee, they used to have to wait a couple hundred years. Yeah. Padre Pio uh, was a padre, meaning father, of course, uh, was an Italian priest uh, in northern Italy who, uh, for many, many years in the uh, early 20th century, was a great healer. And people would come from all over the world and were healed of, uh, of uh, their diseases uh, by his intercession and prayers. And he also would be uh, subject to the stigmata, which is very interesting. Uh, the, we may be able to do a show on this sometime, the, the spiritual manifestations of faith, physical manifestations of faith from tradition to tradition, because they vary. Uh, in the Eastern Church, which we talk about a lot, which is, is more focused theologically on the resurrection of Christ, you have miracles and mystics who seem to reflect that aspect of the faith. But in the Western Church, which is the Roman Catholic and Protestant churches, you have, especially the Roman Catholic Church, traditionally you have phenomena and miracles that seem to reflect the uh, the faith of that tradition. And the crucifixion. The crucifixion and the passion of Christ. So as a result, a lot of people uh, who have um, had these phenomena, I know we're getting away from our subject, but just to explain who Padre Pio was, uh, these the stigmata, as it was called, which is the, the, the actual five wounds of, of Christ, uh, as reported in the Gospels, are actually appearing on people's bodies. Now, right here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, where we broadcast from, there was uh, Marie Rose Farron, and I think she came up on Joe Ferrier's show, yeah. uh, talk show, the other night. And uh, Marie Rose Farron was a young lady in the 1920s and 30s here uh, who died young but and was very ill throughout her life, but uh, reportedly had these wounds on her body. And she has a great, great devotion uh, following uh, to this day. People pray, although she has never been... Uh, canonized or anything by the Roman Catholic Church, uh, there were all sorts of interesting political 
sort of thing surrounding that controversy after she died. But mm-hmm. in any case, uh, that's what the stigmata are, and that's who Father uh, Padre Pio was. Uh, well, he could also be in two places at once, floated during that's mass. Right, that, exactly. That's right. He was able to bilocate. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, that's why. That's how they all got brought up in the first place. Okay, there you go. Right. You're right. Sorry, Ben. I, I'm, I'm one step behind you tonight. Maybe two. It's okay. Anyway, yes, uh, many of the saints... Uh, were known to be able to buy local. Now, now, that, now that, that's, that goes beyond tradition. In the Eastern Church, Eastern tradition, and the Western tradition, and in Buddhist tradition, and in many other traditions, many of the mystics and holy people were able to buy locate, be in two places at once. And of course, what were they doing? Doppelgangers? Apparently. Or are they, I don't know, why look into it so much? I mean, it is yeah. what it is. I mean. Well, yeah, it is what it is, yeah. Well, we were trying to answer these emails here. I'm going to bring it up. Anyway. Okay, so. Uh, anyway, Marty, I think this is an extremely interesting story. Um, uh, the, the problem with the astral body thing is I think a lot of these spiritualist answers to these questions came up because people couldn't think of anything else. You know, yeah. We see the world around us. We seem like we have one body. There seems to be one world because that's what our five senses perceive. And all our science and all our knowledge, all our epistemology is based on, all our theology is based on that. And that is why the motto of this show is everything you know is wrong because that is not good enough. There isn't just one world, apparently. There isn't just one body. There isn't just one uh, reality in which you'd have to have a spiritual manifestation of something physical in order to have it at all. So I think that we're looking at parallel worlds here again. Uh, We're looking at, uh, I'd like to know where exactly you grew up, Marty, uh, was it in Texas? Uh, was it in one of these areas uh, where there are phenomena going on of all kinds all the time and the people are so used to it they barely notice it? We were talking uh, last night on our CBS edition about uh, with, with uh, Linda Godfrey, expert on these uh, strange canine uh, cryptids, as they're called, the unrecorded species and things of this kind that prey upon cattle and do all kinds of odd things. If you, maybe you've heard of the chupacabra or whatever. Uh, you know the bases of the Wolfman legends and all this business, and uh, she was uh, saying, and we asked her, "Do you when you when you examine these cases?" Because she goes out and does it herself; it's not just third hand. Do you encounter areas where you have not not just these strange dog-like creatures, but you also have UFOs or goes? And the answer, of course, is a big yes. And when you look at that, the answer is usually a big yes. So I'd like to know where. Uh, Marty, you grew up and where this was occurring, and most likely it wasn't just your dad this was happening to. It might have been happening to a lot of people in the area because these things are never isolated. So thank you for that that letter. It's extremely interesting. And uh, there we go. I think that's uh, quite, a, quite a great story. And um, it's good that you and your family took it uh, in such stride. I think people need to realize that the paranormal is nothing of the kind. It's entirely normal. <laughs> And people need to kind of take it in stride. This is as real as it gets. It's denying it that really is kind of intellectually dishonest. Yeah. So in any way, uh, any case, I think that was a great, uh, great message from from your letter there. Now, of course, uh, I'll let you read the next section there. Okay. okay. The, the mother of all quote ghosts of the living cases has to be the one my dad ran into in 1978. In his book Footsteps in the Attic, he talks of the haunter. Well, yeah, we've often talked about this case on the show, but uh, one of our uh, people who wrote in tonight said it sent shivers up her spine, so you're in luck tonight because we're going to talk about it again. Uh, Certainly bears mentioning in the context of these doppelgangers and ghosts of the living. Now, I refer to this case as the haunter, and it's one of the 
chapters in, as Ben just said, my 2002 book, Footsteps in the Attic. Uh, there's a tremendous demand for that book, by the way. The last press run is depleted and is going to be reprinted very soon, and it is available on Amazon Kindle and should be available uh, more readily in the print form as soon as we can get it reprinted. Anyway, I used to think that The Haunter was what scholars refer to as an urban legend. Uh, that's a story that started somewhere, got repeated, changed, and exaggerated to the point that it joined the fabric of modern folklore. Uh, kind of like alligators in the sewers and all that business. Yeah. Right? All right. Uh, now, I thought The Haunter was one of those kinds of stories until I ran into one myself. In October of 1978, very, very warm southern New England, I was living alone in a, what I guess was a writer's paradise. It was a secluded little house on the shores of Shinipset Lake in Tolland, Connecticut. Now, on one of these uh, really warm days, the phone rang. It was a very worried young woman. And I remember, because I've made notes all through this, uh, I know my sister and she isn't crazy. And uh, I'll use the name Janice DeVito, uh, similar to her name, but you know, I don't, I, I, for even 30, 40 years later, I don't like to talk about because these things can come back and haunt people, pardon the pun. Uh, it seemed that Janice and her older sister Patricia, uh, both students at the nearby University of Connecticut, had spent a few days in southern Maine a few weekends before that. Uh, there they had had a scare that she said would haunt them for the rest of their lives. This is how Jan uh, told me the story. Uh, Pat, the sister, had always been big on reincarnation, dreams, and deja vu. Every now and then uh, we'll be someplace, she said, and she'll come out with something about this or that being familiar. Now, we were driving down this old road in Maine when Pat suddenly screamed. Uh, she scared uh, the fecal matter out of us. Uh, stop, stop, she yelled. Joey, with Janice's boyfriend who was with them, he was driving and he hit the brakes. Uh, Pat was, quote, white as a ghost. And Pat yelled, oh, my God, and pointed to this house maybe 50 feet back from the road. Now, uh, I was told that everybody's skin was crawling by that time, and uh, they noted that the house was white, uh, only about 10 years old, and had a rather neglected yard. I know this house. This is my house, Pat yelled, leaping out of the car. Terrified and convinced that her sister finally had lost it once and for all, Jan and the boys tore after her, didn't catch up until she pounded on the front door. Uh, the door opened just as the trio was pulling, uh, trying to pull Pat away from the door. And Jan told me that what happened next would be seared into her memory, quote, until the day I die, unquote. The woman who answered the door was in her mid-30s. She, actually, she was in her mid-40s. I'm, my note's wrong here. She took one look at Pat, screamed, and went stumbling back into the house. A slightly older man then appeared, gaped at the young people on the doorstep, but was unable to speak. In the meantime, uh, Pat had recovered a bit, apologized, and had started to explain her feeling that she knew the house. The woman, quote, was still shaking like a leaf, Janet recalled, uh, but the man, as pale as ever, finally found his voice. Quote, I wouldn't be surprised if you did know this house. It's you. It's haunted by you. For God's sake, please go. Even with that, the man and the woman continued to stare at Pat in fascination, seeming almost reluctant to shut the door. So Joey uh, took charge. We're sorry to bother you, he said, pulling the others away and down the path to the car. Even as they drove away, the couple continued to gaze at them from the front door. Quote, uh, I was told we never found out what it was about, but it was scary as hell. Pat's been depressed and scared ever since. Well, needless to say, this case captured my imagination, and the first thing I did was, uh, after interviewing Pat on October 20th, 1978, 
Uh, and again, she claimed that she had been dreaming about this house uh, for at least two years. Interestingly, the dreams had stopped as soon as she actually encountered the place, just as we were saying tonight. Perhaps the wave function was collapsed and the world's joined and no more paranormal phenomena. Quote, there were a couple of different dreams about my being in the house, uh, Pat told me. I had one at least once a week, and they almost always stayed with me. In other words, she didn't forget dreams, as we often do. In one dream that kept reoccurring, she would be walking down the stairs toward the front door, then stop halfway down, startled by something she couldn't identify. In another dream, she would be standing in the living room, gazing out the picture window with children playing in the front yard, a television babbling in the background. In still another sequence, Pat described, she was in the front yard looking toward the house. It was because of this last sequence that Pat said she recognized the house when she came upon it. What I found most interesting was that in the dreams, the house was Pat's. She was adamant about that, and she was very sure that the children she saw from the front window, two boys and a girl, were hers. As a matter of fact, Pat told me that when she first saw this house from the road that fall day in 1978, the question, why aren't there toys in the yard, flashed through her mind for an instant. Now, Pat struck me as imaginative and somewhat superstitious, but not abnormal. She came across as very sincere with her permission, and not being a doctor, of course, myself. I called my old friend and teacher, Father John Kiley, a Roman Catholic priest and psychologist, who arranged a thorough psychiatric evaluation at the Institute of Living in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, today, it's, it still exists as a facility of Hartford Hospital's mental health program. In the meantime, I was determined to track down the couple in Maine who had been struck with abject horror at Patricia DeVito's very presence. Fortunately, Jan had caught a name on the mailbox, Kalinowski, not their real name. Uh, the town they were driving through at the time, she said, was York, lovely village of York, uh, Maine, York Harbor, actually. Uh, I'm sure many listeners in this area have visited there. In an uncanny stroke of luck, my mother's family had owned a vacation home in that town for nearly a century, and I had vacationed in the area all my life, so I knew a few people around there. And through these handy contacts, I managed to get an address and a phone number, which was unlisted, for the only Kalinowskis in the vicinity. I thought it best to introduce the subject and myself in a letter instead of by phone. I don't want to give the guy a heart attack. Uh, I wrote on October 22nd, and I included every professional reference I could think of uh, so that people would realize it wasn't some kind of a publicity hound or what. Remember, this is a day long before there were ghost hunters around in any great number. Frankly, I didn't expect an answer before the holidays were over, if at all, but to my amazement, I answered the telephone only three days later to find a deeply shaken Peter Kalinowski at the other end. And I wrote down what he said. This is very difficult for us, he said, but we would have, we have to talk to somebody who won't think we're crazy. Unquote. The man sounded like a complete wreck. Uh, not knowing who I was, of course, he evidently had called every one of the clergy, teachers, and doctors that had given his references. They tell me you're not a publicity hound, he went on. We're not going to talk to you unless you guarantee in writing that you'll keep what we tell you confidential. Well, I thought this was a little over the top. I bit my tongue and agreed, writing this nearly 23 years later, and that was, in, that was a lot longer than that now. Uh, I think the uh, statute of limitations was up on that particular promise. And it's well, you know, well into almost 30 years ago now. So the day after Halloween found me turning into the driveway of the house in question, a plain two-story 60s-era home on the uh, back road a few miles from the quaint village of York Harbor. The first thing I noticed was a for sale sign on the front lawn. 
Peter Kalinowski opened the door before I even stepped out of the car. At the door were, uh, where Pat DeVito had caused such terror, I found a childless couple in early middle age. There were two very frightened people, and inside Anne Kalinowski offered me some coffee, which I declined. I never done no touch of stuff. Her hands were shaking, and she looked as though she had uh, she could have used something a lot stronger than coffee. And I really checked you out were the first words out of Peter's mouth. We don't want anybody hearing about this, and we just want some answers. We've barely slept since this happened. And in so many other cases, the Kalinowski's first concern was whether they were going crazy. As I say in the introduction to the book, Footsteps in the Attic, there are all sorts of explanations for hearing and seeing things. Most of them are not paranormal. Neural conditions, temporal lobe epilepsy, something many doctors immediately look for when a patient reports a paranormal experience. Uh, psychiatric conditions, schizophrenia, or simply optical illusions. But the story I heard from this couple made the hair stand up on the back of even my neck. In absolute fascination, I listened to Peter and Anne describe the numerous occasions they had seen a transparent figure they said was, quote, the girl at the door, unquote, in exactly the same positions Pat DeVito described in her dreams, walking halfway down the stairs, looking out the living room window, and even standing in the front yard looking out the house. They saw her doing these things in transparent form. Sometimes they witnessed these apparitions individually, sometimes together. Uh, Pat would make her appearances at all hours of the day and night, they said, which is interesting. So terrified had Peter and Ann become that in the weeks before the DeVito group had shown up at their door, they had taken to sticking close together even while in their own home. That's how frightened they were. Now, interestingly, uh, the Kalinowskis were convinced that the stairway apparition seemed to see them, quote-unquote. Remember, Pat was describing sort of, she was, her attention was captured by something but while she was standing on the stairs, but she couldn't quite tell what it was. This is fascinating. But as they said it, the apparition or Pat would look not so much at them as through them. I immediately recalled Pat's description of her dreams, as I just said. And yes, just as Pat's dreams about the house had stopped when she finally encountered the place, so had the apparitions, according to the Kalinowskis. In the course of long interviews with the couple, first individually and then together, I saw no signs that there was anything but very sincere and very frightened uh, intentions on the part of these people. Meanwhile, Pat was undergoing the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, MMPI. It's a modern version of which is still used as a first step in determining people's psychopathology. Uh, it revealed nothing especially abnormal about her. She was highly imaginative with a tendency to gloss over problems, but that was about it. Nothing uh, leading to any uh, belief that she might have been schizophrenic or anything like that. Uh, Pat never met the Kalinowskis again, but I kept in touch with both of them throughout, 1980, uh, 19, throughout 1979. At that time, uh, and in that time, neither the couple nor the girl ever reported any other significant paranormal experience. The Haunter, as I call it in the book, remains one of the most fascinating and mystifying cases I've ever dealt with, and it sure opened the doors to whole new ideas and whole new ways to think about the paranormal. Now, back in the parapsychological stone age of the 1970s, my equipment consisted of a few cameras, some recording gear, a notebook, and a pen. I had no Gauss meter, which is or the so-called EMF meter that the feral ghost hunters and some other legitimate ones used too, uh, which measures electromagnetic fields. Didn't didn't have it. There was no bevy of experts or consultants. I'd never heard of the multiple worlds interpretation of quantum physics, so naturally I was stumped about what this would be. So I fell back on research that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, that of my friend D. Scott Rogo. 
Someone reported, quote, astral projecting, and somebody else reported seeing that person's, quote, astral body at the place to which they had projected. And I figured that must be the only explanation. So I considered the Kalinowski case just a variation on that. But I was confused by one thing that would not be explained by any kind of astral projection, and that was Patricia's insistence that there were children at the house that had belonged and that they belonged to her. You know, how could you get that out of that experience? So again, I scratched my head for a while, realized that Scott had noted several cases in which, quote, these astral projectors had ended up in what seemed like quite different worlds, and he just sort of chalked up Pat's children thing to something like that. Little did I realize how correct I probably was, looking back on it from the perspective of quantum reality and the multiverse that we all talk about today. Uh, I believe that what the Kalinowskis and Pat DeVito went through was, again, another, like some of our people who wrote in tonight, a mutual experience of the same parallel universes. And according to researchers like Scott, people who experience these out-of-the-body experiences they often talk about often do so while asleep, as in Pat's dreams. But where did Pat project where would she have projected to? To that house, just to that house in, in York Harbor, Maine? I don't think so. I'm convinced that Pat didn't so much project her consciousness as many of these researchers believe. Uh, I think she connected with that facet of her consciousness that already carried on daily life so in another part of the multiverse, in the main house, in a parallel world, in which it was her house and those were her children. I think it's as simple as that, if you can call that simple. So I think that's essentially it. If I'm right, then how many other ghosts are just shadows of people carrying on their lives somewhere or somewhere else, wondering about those weird and vivid dreams that they can't get out of their minds? And how impossibly rare are those cases in which the projector and the percipient actually encounter one another in the same day-to-day -day reality? Apparently it might not be as rare as I thought it was, given some of the emails we received tonight. What do you think, Ben? Well, you said you kept... Um you kept uh, uh, kept in touch with the people for you know, at least a year, so nothing else happened after that. I know because at the time I didn't realize. In the late seventies, I was still kind of getting used to some of these ideas that would turn into the multiverse theories. So maybe in a way I didn't know quite what questions to ask them. But I did ask, "Do you have you had any other paranormal experiences?" And uh, the Kalinowskis were they gradually calmed down. They were scared like for months after this experience. It was really it was kind of pathetic to see. And Patricia kind of moved on um, to, and I, I, I think she became a Wiccan in the end, as far as I know. But I, no. after two years, I kind of, you know, was moving on, and there didn't, didn't seem to be any more questions to ask. But um, uh, but that does bring up the question of follow-up. Uh, one thing Ben and I do is we follow up and follow up and follow up, and we work on cases for years, something I often point out. Yeah, instead of just running in, screaming a lot, then running out. <laughs> well, we try not to scream at all, but... Uh, as a matter of fact, speaking of which, we have a report, uh, in, I'll get to in a minute if we have the time, uh, from our case in Connecticut that we have been uh, sort of, this is kind of the, the mother of all of our recent cases, certainly the cases Brett and I have worked on together, uh, that has led into all kinds of interesting areas of the paranormal and that we did preliminary filming for our uh, television show uh, on uh, back in November of uh, last year. So I'll give you that update in a minute. But that, that one just never seems to... It's the gift that keeps on giving, that case, I'll tell you. Oh, yeah. So anyway, in over 40 years of research now, going on 41, uh, this case in Maine is still the only one that I've ever dealt with firsthand. But again, you hear 
our files are full of cases like this, and of course we have some some new ones to look into tonight uh, from our, our listeners. And please, uh, please tell us if you have had any sort of experience like this. We're very interested in hearing it. Uh, you can contact us very easily through our websites, uh, NewEnglandGhosts.com, and of course the show website BehindTheParanormal.com. Uh, at any time, uh, Paul <coughs> at BehindTheParanormal.com, <coughs> excuse me, or Ben at BehindTheParanormal.com. Let us know what you think, and let us know if you've ever had experiences like this, or if you have friends who have. Uh, again, we—it's uh, not just you know—we're ready to believe you. It's not necessarily that, but we want to hear uh, from sincere people. So anyway, uh, you can also write to us uh, here at the station: W O N twelve forty A M nine fifty eight Park Avenue, Woonsocket, Rhode Island O two eight nine five. Communicate with us in any way you wish. Okay, well, uh, let's uh, close that out. And uh, again, if any, I guess we got a minute here. If anybody doesn't have any questions, it's seven. We have about seven minutes. All right. Well, seven six six one two four zero in the four hundred one area code, or eight hundred four four nine one two four zero nationally. So let's move on then to a report from Donna. Now, Donna, we don't give her last name because my gosh, people will be all over this place. Donna is a very dear friend of ours now, and is a reporter for our show. We have a number of reporters. The number is growing. If you'd like to look into that yourself, again, go to the website behindtheparanormal.com. You've been reading all night. Want me to read this? Yeah, sure. Go for it. Okay. Uh, hi, Paul uh, and Ben. For some reason, I've uh, been getting increased activity. And this is a farmhouse in Connecticut built in 1783, talked about many times on the show. You have... Uh, what appears to be a, a grand central station of the multiverse. You have all sorts of species, times, places, including her own six generations of her family who lived in the house, all interacting, usually in relatively peaceful coexistence. But at times things do act up. And Ben and I went over there and have been researching it for about five years. We've discovered a triangle of activity in the area. These these areas of activity seem to really really do seem to be in triangles, uh, geographically speaking. And we uh, made an attempt with some help from a friend, so to speak, to move some of the, if you want to call them portals, out of this house and just move them a little bit away geographically so that the people could have their house back, so to speak. But uh, Donna has lived in this house for, for uh, going on 60 years and there hasn't been any let up to any great degree. But things did calm down after we did that, but now uh, there seems to be a little bit of an increase. Anyway, Donna continues. My son-in-law and daughter were awakened this morning by a woman singing off-key in my grandson's room. She got up and went in and no one was there, but the singing did not stop. It was loud enough that it woke up my grandson, too. The voice was familiar to my daughter, but she could not pinpoint who. Interesting little multiverse connection, maybe. The song was about Jesus and the angel, but she was not familiar with it. Maybe a hymn? Uh, no music, just singing. Two days ago, my grandson took his toy vacuum up the stairs to my bedroom. Uh, he wanted to pretend he was helping. He got to the top of the stairs and called me. He was frantic. Uh, I took a second to get up off the couch, and he called again and wanted me to come upstairs right away. I got halfway up, and he told me that something was over my bed going round and round. I looked to see if the ceiling fan was on, but it wasn't. I asked him what it was, and he said that it was a black thing. He made a circular motions with his arm to show me how it was moving. He is now telling me that Ashwar, that's his invisible friend, has brought Gordon, apparently another invisible friend, to meet him. Uh, just in case you aren't familiar with our Ashwar situation here, Ashwar 
is the invisible friend of this young boy who's three. We've learned to listen to this child because there's a very interesting video on our Facebook page, Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, and on our NewEnglandGhosts.com website of something in this tree when the boy said that Ashwar was in the tree. And it's a very quick video, but you can see something like whitish something coming down out of the tree. It almost looks like an arm unfolding or something like this. Check it out. And um, we have learned, as I said, to listen to this young man. And uh, this is uh, this morning at 3, I woke up uh, to his large truck, that's the little boy's, uh, making noise in the downstairs den. It was racing and roaring. My husband got up and was puzzled as to how it could have turned on because there was hard to reach switch behind the wheel. He tried to make it go several times over the course of the day without turning the switch, but he couldn't make it turn on. All right. Well, I'm going to end there because uh, we're out of time. But, again, this young boy is a very interesting child, a very intelligent, a very articulate. Uh, he, co- he said Ben was his best friend, and he Aww. calls me Uncle Eno. I think that's cute. So, uh, and this, sure enough, this invisible friend may be uh, joined by another one, and we're going to be pursuing that. And, again, this case never really seems to end. And uh, what we've got here is a situation with a triangle, as I say, geographically speaking. There have been UFO sightings by people in the town, and we believe there is a connection between all of it. In areas where there are paranormal flaps, we believe that many, many worlds are intersecting at the same time, and this, these are the experiences that result. So we'll certainly keep you posted uh, on these cases. So we're coming down to the wire here. No time for any more emails. And uh, I, I would point out, a lot of people have written in lately uh, asking about where they can learn more about the paranormal in a formal way. Well, there are schools, uh, the Keith Harari, whom I referred to, and also uh, D. Scott Rowe taught at John F. Kennedy University in San Francisco, where they, uh, they had a department of parapsychology, and you can actually get a degree there. That's one possibility if you live near there, but you can't do it online. Uh, so I would suggest International Metaphysical University. It is in the process of becoming accredited. I teach a course there in religion and the paranormal and science, and you can check it out, intermetu.com, intermetu.com. So many thanks to our producer, Craig Pelletier, and we won't see you next Monday, February 14th, uh, that's Valentine's Day, and uh, I have a wife and Ben has a girlfriend, um, and so we're going to be spending time with our, our respective uh, friends of the uh, contradictory gender, and uh, we'll be doing a rebroadcast at that time, 7 p.m. Eastern, uh, 4 Pacific, right here on WON, 1240 a.m. on com. But we will be back live the following week, February 21st, when Ben and I will be talking with Reverend Clarissa Vasquez on demonology. All right. Okay, in the meantime, tune into our Sunday evening CBS radio edition uh, in Boston, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and Seattle, and online at www.newskyradio.com. On February 13th, we'll be taking with, uh, we'll be talking with New York Times best-selling author Steve Alton about his book 2012: The End of Days. That's the reschedule from the uh, show that we, we were supposed to be on in this station, but he, we had a problem, and so we rescheduled that to that date. So don't miss that. Okay, and don't forget you can get all of our free podcasts along with show schedules and guest information at www.behindtheparanormal.com. In the meantime, uh, we leave you with a rather interesting quote from British author Sir Terence David John, otherwise known as Terry Pratchett. Quote, The shortest unit of time in the multiverse is the New York second, defined as the period of time between the traffic lights turning green 
and the cab behind you honking, unquote. Thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we'll see you next time.